Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Arm Scholar Podcast. Um, I'm sorry I haven't done a podcast in a while. One of my goals for the uh, year of 2020 was to give the podcast a shot, to give it a good effort, and what ended up happening is life got way too crazy. Uh, the YouTube channel itself started to take off uh, more than I had even expected, so I had to pay a little bit more attention over there. Uh, but one of my goals for 2023 is to actually get the podcast going provide you guys a weekly podcast uh, covering a variety of topics. Um, of course, he heavily focusing on two-way um, two rights, cases, legislation, just mainstream things that are going on, but also do some other things as well. Talk about maybe some other topics that pop up, some things gun-related, maybe some things not. And then also maybe even do a lot of guest interviews. Um, now that I've been in the industry a little bit longer, I have built up a ton of relationships with other content creators, other people in the firearms industry. So one of the things that I thought would be really cool is to do some guest podcasts where I interview some some of my really good friends, for example, like Jared from Guns and Gadgets, um, one of the first guys I ever met when I started doing YouTube. Um, we've become great friends. We talk almost daily now. And a lot of other guys as well, like Braden from Langley Outdoors and, and just a ton of other people. So that's kind of going to be the goal with the podcast is maybe to do some more heavy discussions into two-way topics and also do some guest stuff as well and just do some longer form stream of conscious uh, discussions. Um, but for this first podcast, what I thought would be interesting, especially since we are heading into uh, here 2023, um, I, as I'm recording this, it's January 3rd. Um, what I thought would be interesting would be to talk about some of the major wins and losses over the year of 2022 and um, talk about some good things that happened and also some of the bad things that happened. So I'm just going to jump right into it. Um, this is going to be structured where I want to talk about some of the bad things first and then some of the good things. But what I need to do first is talk about actually one of the good things because a lot of these uh, topics that I'm going to discuss in this podcast are a direct result of the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin decision. And I think that is probably one of the best things that happened in the year of 2022. If you're not familiar, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, or NYSERPA as some people call it, versus Bruin, was a case which made its way up to the Supreme Court and was ruled on by the Supreme Court in 2022. It happened, I believe, in July, um, and it was a landmark case. Uh, you have to keep in mind that when it comes to the Second Amendment uh, legal sphere, there aren't a ton of cases that the Supreme Court has directly ruled on. Uh, you have the Miller case, you have Heller, you have McDonald, and then really after McDonald, there wasn't a ton of two-way cases. You did have the Caetano case, I believe in 2016, that dealt with stun guns. But really since uh, Heller, McDonald, the Supreme Court really hadn't addressed the area of the Second Amendment. They hadn't taken up a ton of Second Amendment cases. They had stayed as far away from those cases as they possibly could. Um, and that's really rare. When you talk about talking about other like Bill of Rights issues, constitutional rights, um, fundamental rights, a lot of these other topics have been very well flushed out by the Supreme Court. Um, for example, I when I was in law school, you have multiple sections during your first year where you have a con law class and you go over due process and you talk about First Amendment rights and you do all of those things. There are even dedicated classes that I took for just the First Amendment where the whole semester, months long, you're just going over all of these First Amendment cases 
uh, religious rights, freedom of speech, all of those things, freedom of association, all that stuff. Um, and that's a dedicated class just for the First Amendment. But when I was in law school and you would come to the Second Amendment portion, uh, you would do it. In my case, it was in the first year of law school in con law class. We really just covered Heller and McDonald. And that was probably it wasn't even a half of a day of the discussion in the con law class. It was really just maybe 20 minutes uh, where we briefly went over Heller and McDonald, what was held there, and then we moved on. So that is why the Bruin decision was so important, because really it's been a 14-year gap since Heller. Um, I think you can count McDonald. McDonald really is just applying Heller, um, essentially reiterating Heller and just applying it to the state, saying, yes, this also applies to you states, um, that our decision in Heller also is imported into the states as well. So people cite McDonald as well, but really it's Heller is the main one that you want to focus on. Um, but yeah, since Heller, there wasn't a whole lot. And then this year, we get this landmark decision in Bruin. And it really does change a lot of the legal landscape as far as to a litigation and our right to keep and bear arms going forward. Um, when it comes to Bruin, I guess the main things that you need to take away from that decision is it did a few really important things. One of the first things that it did that a lot of people glaze over is that it affirmed the right to carry outside of your home for self-defense. That sometimes in the Bruin decision, when people talk about Bruin, they overlook that aspect. That seems like a very obvious thing that, of course, your right to keep and bear arms exists outside of your home. It exists to your right to self-defense of, your, of yourself and to others outside of your home. But what had happened since Heller and McDonald, you had a lot of states and you had a lot of lower courts argue that the right to keep and bear arms only applied to your home. Um, it was exclusive to your right to have and to protect yourself within your domicile. Um, they almost, a lot of states acted and a lot of circuit courts acted as if all of a sudden when you walked outside your front door, your rights magically disappeared. So that is a big part of Bruin, that it reaffirmed that you do have a right to carry a firearm outside of the home for self-defense. That seemed like something very obvious, but it wasn't obviously stated in Heller. Um, it was, I guess, implied, but a lot of states and lower courts decided that they wanted to try to distinguish Heller and say that your right did not exist outside the home. Therefore, they could create much more restrictions on carrying firearms out in public, public carry, concealed carry, other things of that nature, uh, transporting firearms, whatever. So that's the first major thing that Bruin did. The second major thing that it did is that it reaffirmed the appropriate type of analysis when it comes to Second Amendment litigation. Now, you heard me say reaffirmed. I hear some people say that this is a new test. But really, if you read the Heller decision, this test already existed within Heller. The issue came that lower courts decided that they did not want to adhere to that test in Heller. The proper test was text as informed by relevant history and tradition. That is what the Supreme Court in Bruin said is the appropriate type of analysis. And you look at history dating back to 1791. Um, there are some arguments being made currently that maybe you look at some history surrounding the ratification of the 14th Amendment. Uh, but really, that is mainly if you're looking at state issues. But that's a discussion for another time. But that was the test that Bruin reaffirmed. The issue was, again, after Heller, you had a lot of states and lower courts arguing for a different type of analysis. They were arguing for analysis and tests like the two-step approach. 
Um, the Ninth Circuit, we've talked about a ton of cases coming out of the Ninth Circuit, specifically cases coming out of uh, California, like the magazine ban cases and the ban on so-called assault weapons, Bruin. I mean, uh, Miller and Duncan are those two cases. And in all of those cases, you had the Ninth Circuit arguing that they needed to look at these issues through the lens of the two-step approach, which is first deciding on whether or not this right is protected or this conduct in question is protected by the Second Amendment. And then if they said it was, then they would say, okay, what level of scrutiny should we apply to this? Should we apply strict scrutiny, which is the highest level of scrutiny that you would apply to a constitutional right issue? Um, makes it very hard for a government to pass that type of test if they have a restriction in place under strict scrutiny almost always their restriction would be found unconstitutional then you have all the way at the bottom which is rational basis which pretty much means if you use the rational basis approach um, what ends up happening is as long as the government puts forward some sort of argument whatsoever um, that hey we need to do this because it maybe will lead to less injuries or maybe really anything. They could put forward any type of um, argument. They would pass that test and their law that they put in place would be found constitutional. And then right in the middle is intermediate scrutiny. Um, but what ended up, and that one is a little bit, there's supposed to be less wiggle room in that one, but what ended up happening when it came to the Ninth Circuit and some of these other circuit courts is they treated intermediate scrutiny really as rational basis. So what it would end up happening in all these cases, for example, Duncan, you would have the state of California argue that they needed to limit magazine capacity to 10 rounds because it would lessen um, casualties during mass casualty incidents, uh, shootings, things of that nature. It would lead to less harm, to less deaths. You know, people would have to reload more. So they would put forward that public interest. And almost always you had these circuit courts in the Ninth Circuit, these judges in the Ninth Circuit or the state of California uh, judges would always say, okay, that's a good enough rationale. Um, it's okay for you to put in place this restriction on magazines. It doesn't matter that magazines are arms protected by the Second Amendment. So what happened in Bruin is it said, no, that test is not appropriate. The only test that applies is the text of the Second Amendment. And I'll actually pull up, let me uh, get the Bruin decision here. Um, have to pull up my second screen, sorry, bear with me. Should have actually had this up. Uh, actually, when the Bruin decision came out, I came up with a whole bullet point system um, wherein I went through because I also wanted some reference points uh, for if I ever needed to go back or give someone a quick breakdown of the Bruin decision. Um, and I've actually given that to other content creators because they've asked me after the Bruin decision, hey, do you have a summary of what are the main takeaways? And so the bullet point system is kind of an interesting way for me to give them my entire stream of consciousness of what I think is important to take away from Bruin. Um, but when you look at the Bruin decision, what they stated as far as the two-part approach, is it said that today we decline to adopt the two-part approach. In keeping with Heller, we hold that when the Second Amendment's plain text covers an individual's conduct, the Constitution presumptively protects that conduct. To justify its regulation, the government may not simply posit that the regulation promotes an important interest. Rather, the government must demonstrate that the regulation is consistent with this nation's historical tradition of firearms regulation. Only if a firearms regulation is consistent with this nation's historical tradition may a court then conclude that the individual's conduct falls outside the Second Amendment's unqualified command. 
when you hear uh, Justice Thomas right there mention the unqualified command, that is the unqualified command of shall not be infringed. So that is the test under Bruin. And it essentially struck down the use of the two-part approach, the two-step approach. Uh, very famously, Justice Thomas stated that the two-step approach was one step too many. What that led to is that all of these may issue CCW licensing schemes like the one being challenged in Bruin coming out of the state of New York uh, were found invalid. Now, there were some other things that happened in Bruin where Bruin, I would not say, is a perfect decision. I think it was a very strong step in the right direction. But you did have some concurrences from individuals like Kavanaugh who talked about shall issue permitting uh, being appropriate Um almost alluding to some language that states have now very much latched onto, arguing that a permitting system is okay as long as it's uh, purely objective, if there's no subjective components to it at all. Uh, recently, you had, I believe it was the state of Oregon, latch on to Justice, uh, Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence about permitting systems. They latched onto it when they introduced their permit to purchase, saying that Bruin affirmed that permit purchases and schemes of that nature, as long as they are objective, are okay under the Constitution. So Bruin was not a perfect decision, but it was a very great decision. I am very happy with it. I think it did, did a ton of things to correct the current issues that we have um, in the Second Amendment legal sphere. And again, we don't have a ton of decisions out of the Supreme Court when it comes to the Second Amendment. I think this is an area of law that still has a lot of room, a ton of room to be flushed out. So that was the biggest win when it comes to the year 2022. And I think everybody would agree that that is the biggest win. Now, the reason why I wanted to cover the Bruin decision first and a good win is because as a result of Bruin, you had a lot of resistance you had a ton of resistance at a state level specifically. I think the most famous one, which is a bad thing that came in 2022, um, was the introduction and the passing of New York's Concealed Carry Improvement Act, also known as the CCIA. Uh, the Concealed Carry Improvement Act was passed through a special um, election or a special like extension um, only eight days after the Bruin decision. It was done in direct defiance to the Supreme Court's Bruin decision. And what they wanted there was to create a scheme that was even worse than the one that existed prior to Bruin. What the state of New York did there is they passed a um, concealed carry scheme that had a stricter application process. A lot of you know that they added more fees, more training requirements. Um, you had to have a bunch of references that would you would have to give to the uh, permitting processing individuals, your local sheriff or, or PD. Um, and then also they were looking at like social media accounts for the last three years. So they created a process to even get the application that was harder than the one that existed prior. But then they almost made your permit useless because if you went through the process, you got your application and you followed all these steps and you grant, were granted that permit, it would become useless because the state of New York had a catch-all sensitive place restriction. Essentially, I've heard some people coin it as the vampire restriction, um, where essentially you have to invite a vampire into your home before they can come home, come into your home. Um, that's essentially what the state of New York did with CCWs, where a business or a property would have to affirmatively put up a sign 
or affirmatively tell you that it's okay to concealed carry before you can enter into that business or location. And if you did not see a sign that said it was okay, or you were not told by the property owner that you could come in, well, then you would be creating a felony or misdemeanor in the state of New York. Um, So, like I said, that was a bad thing that I guess resulted out of Bruin. But it wasn't all bad. Now, some of these things I'm going to I'm going to mash together with good and bad, because, again, this was a direct response to Bruin. What happened is immediately there were lawsuits. You had Gun Owners America file a lawsuit against the state of New York because of the Concealed Carry Improvement Act. And famously right now, that is the Antioch case. The Antioch case was filed in a district court in New York. It was heard by a district court judge, Judge Sudeby, and Judge Sudeby, on reviewing the Concealed Carry Improvement Act, reviewed the case or reviewed the law in light of Bruin, and he applied the Bruin standard, text as informed by relevant history and tradition. And what he found is that a majority of the CCIA was, in fact, unconstitutional, did not adhere to the Second Amendment, and also did not adhere to the Bruin decision. And so he issued and granted a preliminary injunction against the CCIA. Um, he didn't in, he didn't pass an injunction against all aspects of the CCIA. There were some things that he left in place. I believe um, what was it that he left in place? He left in place maybe the uh, four character references, um, some of the fees, maybe some of the training requirements. So he didn't strike down all the CCIA, but some of the major sections, like the good moral character standard. He struck down as unconstitutional um, the catch-all sensitive place restriction. He struck down as unconstitutional under Bruin and a lot of other things as well. Now, famously, this is also going to be one of my good things. That's kind of a result of all this. So you see how something went from good from Bruin to bad with the state of New York passing the CCAA back to something good because of the Antioch lawsuit. Uh, The Antioch lawsuit right now, like I said, Judge Sudby issued the preliminary injunction. The state of New York said, nah, we don't like that. Uh, We still think that we want to violate what the Supreme Court said. We still want to violate Second Amendment rights. So they appealed that determination up to the Second Circuit, which is the circuit court responsible for cases coming out of New York. The Second Circuit granted a stay on Judge Sudby's ruling. Um, and instead of just waiting for the second circuit to eventually decide that they want to do their job and get to this whole issue, what GOA Gunners of America decided to do is no, we're not going to wait any longer. We've waited so many years, uh, for courts to do the right thing. And automatically what popped in my mind, since I'm a huge geek and you guys always see me wear like Harry Potter shirts and stuff. And actually on my rack behind me, I have a ton of like Harry Potter Funko Pops and a bunch of other stuff. If you zoom in, you can see just a bunch of Harry Potter memorabilia. But what popped in my mind is the Sirius Black where he's it's like, it's been 14 years uh, when he gets back from that. Sorry, that's a big offshoot of a, my nerd brain just working as I'm talking about this. But essentially, GOA said that this is way too long. That This has been taking forever. So they filed an emergency application up to the Supreme Court right here and now. Now, I know a lot of you are probably familiar what's going on with that right now because I've done videos with it. Uh, that was filed to Justice Sonia, Sota, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who is the justice responsible for hearing emergency applications coming out of the Second Circuit. She requested that New York, in fact, respond to that, which I can't st- state enough that that is actually a rarity when it comes to emergency applications 
um, when it comes to the Supreme Court shadow docket, which was what we're dealing with here, um, that's a rarity that on an emergency application, a response is requested. So the justice here, Sonia Sotomayor, requested a response from the state of New York. And in fact, today, as I'm uh, doing this, the state of New York has responded. I'm going to do a more dedicated video on exactly the arguments that they are making, but they've responded to that. Now, the good thing why I'm saying this is a good thing is because this is, has this case here, Antioch, for all intents and purposes, has streamlined the process for the Supreme Court looking at the state's defiance, the state of New York's defiance of that Bruin decision because the state of New York passed the CCIA in direct defiance to what the Supreme Court said in Bruin. And so here you have a streamlined case going back to the Supreme Court saying, you just issued your Bruin decision in July. Eight days later, the state of New York said, no, we are not going to follow what the Supreme Court said. We're not going to follow the traditional structures of our constitutional system where the Supreme Court gets to interpret these issues, issue their decisions, and it's binding precedent on all lower courts. We're not going to follow any of that. We're going to continue to violate the Second Amendment and also the Supreme Court's rulings. So this is streamlined that process to go back to the Supreme Court to say, listen, once again, you have these lower courts in these states outright defying your, your decision. Do something about it. Now, whether or not the Supreme Court will actually do that, that's yet to be seen. Um, I am hopeful that the Supreme Court decides to grant the emergency application, vacate the Second Circuit stay, and along with that, issue some sort of opinion uh, further indicating that they acknowledged that states like New York and New Jersey and California and other states are trying to resist the Bruin decision. And that if they continue to do that, my hope is that the Supreme Court will say if states like that continue to do these actions, the Supreme Court will just continue to vacate all these lower court judgments and allow the appropriate judgments to remain in effect. So that is the hope. Um, and like I said, you can see how something went from good to bad back to good. And I think that's kind of a lot of the themes right now on the things that we're going to talk about. Um, the next thing I want to talk about, so kind of moving a little bit away from that, I mentioned also the New Jersey concealed carry law um, in just passing. New Jersey passed a similar bill, almost cloned, of the Concealed Carry Improvement Act that passed in New York. The only difference in my eyes really with the New Jersey one is that New Jersey added in liability insurance requirements. Again, I've done a complete video on that law that passed in New Jersey. You can watch that. Um, they have restrictions essentially where to get your concealed carry permit, you have to have some sort of concealed carry liability insurance. This is different from, I know some people in the videos had asked me, well, does USCCA, the uh, insurance or the coverage you have through USCCA, would that cover New Jersey? Uh, the answer to that is no, because what happens with USCCA and the coverage, and this is not a plug for USCCA, this is just, uh, I am a partner with USCCA, but this is just to answer some of those questions. USCCA is a membership that you have, and through that membership, you get self-defense liability protection. That liability insurance is specific for legal protection for if you ever have a self-defense shooting or you act in self-defense, it's not even tied directly to self-defense as far as um, concealed carry. It's even if you defend yourself with non-firearms or family members or anything like that. It is for legal protection. It is to cover your legal costs. What the state of New Jersey did with their law is that it's almost like a pure insurance policy with your vehicle where you have to have a certain uh, coverage amount just in case something were to happen with your firearm. Uh, maybe you acted in self-defense. 
um, they want you to have a certain amount of liability coverage. And again, it's different from these legal protection aspect that USCCA would offer. I think New Jersey's wanting, I think it was up to 300,000 um, just in case something happened with two individuals. So again, something bad that happened in response in 2022 to Bruin was the passing of the New Jersey concealed carry law kind of went in tandem with the New York CCIA. Now, Again, those were two bad ones. I want to go back to another bad one that happened beginning of the year that a lot of people forget about, and that was the state of Washington passing their magazine ban. Um, a lot of you don't recall, but the state of Washington passed a magazine capacity restriction. They outlawed magazines that hold more than 10 rounds as so-called large capacity magazines. A lot of people forget about that because a lot of other craziness has happened since then. But the state of Washington joined a bunch of liberal states which ban magazines that hold more than 10 rounds. Uh, they did have a grandfather component in that, and there were a lot of amazing companies like um, Palmetto State Armory and Primary Arms and a ton of Gun Mag Warehouse, a ton of other companies who were trying to prioritize orders coming out of Washington and get those magazines in the hands of Washington residents so that they would have them, they could be grandfathered in. Uh, but the Washington magazine ban went into effect in July. Now, there's litigation going on against that, but that is one of the bad things. You had another state pass a magazine ban. Now, again, that wasn't just isolated to Washington. One of the more recent ones that we've talked about on the channel, and that's popped up in the news, is Oregon. Oregon and their vote in passing in Measure 114. If you don't recall, Oregon Measure 114 went into effect um, well, it was supposed to go into effect recently, and this is also one of those situations where you had something bad that is turning into something good. But it was supposed to go into effect on December 8th, and what it would do is it would create a permit to purchase where you would have to have this permit to be able to purchase firearms in the state of Oregon. Also, it had a ban on magazines that held more than 10 rounds. I know sometimes when I do my videos, I don't break down the entire language, and some people are saying, well, it's more than just magazines that hold more than 10 rounds. Yes, I know I'm just using a catch-all generalization because it's easier for videos. It's easier for discussions uh, to not get into all the legal nuances. Yes, I know it's things that could be readily convertible into something that holds more than 10 rounds. It's belts, it's drums, it's feed strips, it's um, coupled magazines. Um, there's a whole swath of definitions. And a lot of that I'm very much aware of because it was language directly imported from California's magazine ban, Penal Code 32310, and was just adopted by the state of Oregon. They are just using the framework that California already had. So that was one of the negative things that happened also this year in 2022. You had Oregon Measure 114 pass, or actually was voted in. Now, how I mentioned it's something bad that we'll talk about turned into good now, is the lawsuits coming out of Oregon Measure 114. Almost immediately, once again, you had the various organizations, FBC, SAF, I believe, um, local state organizations, uh, OFF, filed lawsuits against the state of Oregon, initially to try and halt it from going into effect on December 8th. The one case that, in my opinion, was the most successful wasn't even a federal case. Shockingly enough, it was a state-level Oregon case, the Arnold v. Brown case, and that is, again, a GOA-led case. In that case... GOA sued the state of Oregon and its representatives and sought a temporary restraining order to prevent it from going into effect before December 8th. A judge there, Judge Rossio, um, in fact found that he should grant the TRO, which halted temporarily 
Oregon Measure 114, the permit purchase and the magazine ban from going into effect. Then the question after that was, okay, it was very good that he granted the TRO. Usually when a judge grants a TRO, that indicates that they will likely grant a preliminary injunction. It almost always happens. Um, so that's why the TRO, we talk often about TROs on the channel, because that is usually the precursor to getting a preliminary injunction. But the question was, was he in fact going to grant the preliminary injunction? So there was recently a hearing um, on Measure 114. And what Judge Rascio did is he extended the TRO as far as the permit to purchase. And his rationale for that is that he would, didn't even want to hear the merits of the case yet on the permit to purchase, primarily because the state of Oregon doesn't even have a system in place yet to enforce their permit to purchase. And so the judge there said, why would I even consider a preliminary injunction on the permit to purchase when you don't even have a system in place? So what he did is he extended out the TRO saying, I'm going to keep the TRO in effect for now until you actually put a system in place. So the TRO is still in effect right now. Now, at that same hearing, what he ultimately decided to do was to, in fact, grant a preliminary injunction to the magazine capacity aspect. And in that ruling, he did find, in fact, these magazines that hold more than 10 rounds are arms protected by the Second Amendment. And also that under Bruin, this type of restriction has no historical basis and therefore, he granted a plenary injunction against the state of Oregon and Measure 114. So again, something bad that happened, but you had some court decisions that are leading to something positive. Now, this is still being heavily litigated. We're not at the final resolution of a lot of these cases we're talking about, but you, it's positive because you can see, especially a lot of lower courts are in fact faithfully applying the Bruin decision. Now, that hasn't been the standard. There have been some outlier district courts and some lower courts who still refuse to follow Bruin. Um, but when we're talking about some positive things, these are the positive cases where Bruin was applied appropriately and halting some of these actions. Now, one of the last bad things I want to talk about has to do with um, ATF regulation. I think that's also one of the uh, looming ones that's out there that is going to be probably one of the biggest problems we have going forward still. It's, I think it's going to be one of the biggest issues we have in 2023. Uh, primarily because we have the looming pistol brace rule coming. And what we're going to talk about here as far as bad has to do with the ATS frames and receivers rule, which went into effect in August. Now, the ATS frames and receivers rule essentially was a tack, an attack on so-called ghost guns, 80 percenters, incomplete frames and receivers, whatever you want to call them. Um, and the ATF's goal here, initially what they claimed was through the rule, they wanted to regulate um, unfinished frames and receivers, and specifically parts kits. And when the rule initially dropped, I read through it. I've done videos on it. And a lot of the language was very specific to parts kits. And then you had a ton of litigation against the ATF. And this, again, leads from something bad that ended up turning good. You had lawsuits against the ATF and their frames and receivers rule in the Vanderstock case and the Division 80 case. And those were federal courts in Texas. And what ended up happening uh, specifically in the Vanderstock case, that is an FBC driven case. I want to mention that as well. I want to give credit to the organizations that are following these lawsuits that are important. Um, in the Vanderstock case, it was before a judge called Judge Reed O'Connor. And he, in fact, reviewed the ATF's frames and receivers rule 
reviewed it and found that, again, it was unconstitutional. Uh, specifically, he focused on not only was it his Second Amendment violation, but it also went beyond the ATF's powers. The ATF extended itself beyond what the statute actually permits them to do, and they expanded language of the GCA beyond what it should have been. Again, the ATF is an executive agency. They do not have the authority to legislate, to create laws. Um, they have the ability to create regulations, but it has to be within the scope of the language of the statute that we are talking about in question. Um, this one specifically, the GCA. The GCA talks about things being readily convertible. So the first part talks about readily convertible, and then the second part talks about um, or any frames or receivers of such weapons, I believe. And it's just off the top of my head. I'm not referencing anything right now. I, I, I don't have all my stuff up. But um, what the ATF was trying to do is to hodgepodge those two definitions together to then create a rule which expanded the scope of a single line within the GCA. And they said that this would clarify what uh, frames and receivers of a weapon really are. Um, that it would add clarification, but they did a clarification in like an 184 page rule. So it's interesting how a single sentence needed to be clarified through a 184 page rulemaking. Um, it's pretty hilarious. Some of the rationales that the ATF comes up with, but that's what they said. Now through the Vandersock lawsuit, you had judge Sedeby who ultimately did say, in fact, that uh, this was unconstitutional, granted a plenary injunction halting the ATF's enforcement, but he's left it specific to the plaintiffs in the case. So there was one company, Tactical Machining, who was a manufacturer of 80 percenters in the uh, parts kits in question. So he granted a preliminary injunction, which protected that manufacturer and their customers. Then he also went on to later expand that to other manufacturers who decided to jump into the lawsuit. Um, I believe, let's see, it was Blackhawk Manufacturing, which is Polymer 80. And then now I believe Defense Distributed was also added in and they're seeking the same type of plenary injunction. So that was a solid win because you had a judge there essentially striking down the ATF's new rule on frames and receivers. Now, this is a bad thing still because it's being litigated and it's not showing any signs of stopping. There's going to be a, ultimately appealed up to the Fifth Circuit. Uh, there's already a, some appeals on the plenary injunctions up to the Fifth Circuit. You have the looming pistol brace rule that is coming. Um, all indications that it will come. There's going to be lawsuits against that. And really the only relief I see is eventually if one of these cases makes its way up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court decides if they want to address ATF overreach. I know some of you probably in your minds right now are thinking, well, what about West Virginia versus EPA? West Virginia v EPA was a decision by the Supreme Court. It did say that under the major question doctrine, uh, agencies uh, like the EPA cannot extend themselves beyond the powers granted to them by Congress, which was a good decision. Now, the issue is getting lower courts to apply a decision like that, which was, was specific to the EPA, getting them to apply that to an agency like the ATF and variety of overreaches by a different agency like the, the ATF. Um, as of right now, we haven't really seen a court lean heavily on West Virginia v. EPA um, when it comes to the ATF. Maybe that's coming. But I think right now our best hope is some of the bump stock cases that are looming in the Fifth Circuit, specifically the Cargill case. And then I believe there's another one, maybe in the Second Circuit, uh, off the top of my head. I can't remember which that one is. But there are some cases that are currently looming that could make their way up to the Supreme Court. And hopefully the Supreme Court decides to take those up. Now, 
I don't have a whole lot of hope for that because the ATF has had ample opportunities to take up bump stock cases. They've declined, I think, four or five bump stock specific cases over the last like five years. So just because a case looks good, it has good lower court procedural history and good facts doesn't mean the Supreme Court has to take it up or they will decide to take it up. The Supreme Court actually denies plenty of cases every single year. They only take up a small fraction. So I think that's really the only relief that we would get as far as ATF overreaches eventually if one of these issues like the frames and receivers issue, the pistol brace issue, or the bump stock issue eventually makes its way up to the Supreme Court and they decide that they finally want to address that issue. Now, as far as some of the other things, I'm just a couple honorable mentions, and then I'll just wrap up this podcast after this. Um, Some honorable mentions of good things that happened. I would say California stopping the concealed carry response law that they tried to pass through a special vote after Bruin. Um, They tried to do that through a specific process, and it was stopped by one vote. So that was a good thing. You had a ton of states like New York, New Jersey immediately pass their defiance bills, But in California, it was stopped. Now, that doesn't mean that California is not going to try to reintroduce it. In fact, they've already indicated that they will try to reintroduce the same bill and get it passed in California. And they're going to do it through the traditional process where they don't need to follow the specific uh, voting rules that stopped them prior. So a good thing that happened, but we could potentially see some negative stuff happen eventually this year. But it was good that it didn't pass this year because... The major battle is to prevent these from ever being passed. And if you can kind of hold them off for years and years and years from ever getting passed, that's really one of the biggest battles. It's a lot harder to get rid of these once they are passed into law and go into effect. So that was a good thing. The other good thing that I want to mention is the Texas 18 to 20 case, also a FBC filed cases. This was actually one of the cases when I was still with FBC, we were working up when I was there getting 18 to 20 year old plaintiffs in Texas or just getting 18 to 20 year old plaintiffs in general is a miserable, miserable issue because they are the most fickle individuals ever. Uh, will never respond to you, never answer your calls, will never sign the documents that you need. And you can't follow these lawsuits without these individuals. So, Uh, This is the Andrew V. McCraw case. There you had a district court judge, in fact, uh, find that the state of Texas's 18, 20-year-old concealed carry restrictions under that new uh, constitutional carry bill that they or law that they passed uh, was unconstitutional because really it it allowed for zero, really zero avenue for an 18 to 20-year-old to get a concealed carry permit. And what the judge there said, and it wasn't, in my opinion, it wasn't a, a perfect decision by any means. Because it alluded to as long as you have a permit process in place, that's good enough. Um, But there, the state of Texas didn't even have a permit process in place. So that's why he struck it down. But it was still it was still ultimately found that, hey, you cannot outright prohibit an 18, 20 year old from being able to carry. Now, I know there was a lot of discussion about the state of Texas appealing that decision up to the Fifth Circuit. They recently dropped that. So that, that is actually going to be a firm win. That was a solid win coming out of the state of Texas. And now other states can reference what the state of Texas judge there ruled. It's not binding precedent on other states and district court judges, um, but it is a good case to point to, especially now that it is binding uh, since the appeal was dropped. Um, and let me look through. Maybe there's some other stuff that I missed. I guess the only other bad things that I want to mention is the ATFs, again, overreach when it came to rare breed FRT triggers and their attack on homemade suppressors. Again, 
Uh, like I mentioned prior, I think this is going to be one of the biggest, biggest battles we have in 2023. It's going to be, going to be ATF overreach. I think the ATF is going to be very active. They were very active in 2022, and I think they're going to be very active in 2023, especially with the pistol brace stuff coming up. Um, I think the ATF is going to be a major problem. They've been a major problem, and I think they're going to be still very active, and they're going to still go after more items, more products, change definitions, uh, modify things to fit their requirements so that they can outlaw more arms. So that's kind of just my highlights and lowlights of 2022. I know some people were asking for this type of stuff, this type of video. Maybe I'll do a video one day um, talking about the highs and lows of 2022, but I thought this was kind of the perfect situation to talk about in a podcast because it's just a ton of information. So again, one of my goals, like I mentioned, is going to be doing more of these podcasts, give you guys more information, longer form discussion, just kind of stream of consciousness stuff like you talk, like you guys saw with my uh, Harry Potter reference that I don't know. That's how my brain works sometimes. I know a lot of you say I talk really fast and that's because my brain a lot of times is just going 100 miles an hour. It's just stuff is popping in and out and going all over the place. So that's just how my brain works. A lot of people say I'm like a wish version of Ben Shapiro and, and I get it. I talk way too fast, but it's just the way I've always been. And it's, it's kind of like saying, hey, you want to change your um, skin color, I guess, or your shoe size or whatever. It's just something... Uh, inherent to me. I, I can't change it. It's just how I've always been. Um, so hope you guys found value in this podcast. Like I said, I'm going to be releasing these all the time now, hopefully. And I really like to get these uh, going in a more um, consistent manner. Let me know down in the review section if you have some podcasts that you want to specifically uh, hear, maybe some topics you wanted me to hear about or want me to discuss and you want to hear about, let me know down in the review section. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple podcast or, or wherever you're listening to this podcast, let me know in the review section. Um, and also consider giving me a review there. I guess it helps with the algorithm on specific on Spotify and Apple podcasts. If you guys leave reviews, so that also would greatly help the channel. So again, thank you guys for listening. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. And as always, thank you guys for listening. And never forget, this nation was built by armed scholars, and this nation will be maintained by armed scholars.